Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Tim Elliott, is a feature writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in publications all over the world and the author of a recently released memoir, Farewell to the Father. Tim, welcome. Welcome and thanks for having me. Now, before we begin, can I ask you to read a little from, from the book? Sure, okay. Um, this is from page 92 and it's about Dad's uh, recurring uh, bowel issues, which uh, sounds bizarre, but it did dominate our house for a while. Uh, with Dad, everything came together south of the border, so to speak, in his bowels, his endlessly restive, serially malfunctioning bowels. Re- rarely in the history of colorect- colorectal medicine have a set of bowels exerted such complete dominion over one household. Piles, polyps, hemorrhoids, fissures, There was always something the matter with Dad's back end, some unspeakable condition with whose symptoms, pain, swelling, bleeding, we all in time became became intimately familiar. Look at this blood, Dad would yell, standing over the toilet late at night. Come and look at this blood. I'm bleeding to death. Dad, I later found out, had some light bleeding, but nothing out of the ordinary, certainly not bowel cancer or liver disease. Uh, and e- yet every bowel movement was the great tragedy, a three-part opera. Lying in bed at night, my eyes like saucers, I pictured the scene like something from the backyard abortionist, all body parts and red flush. Not even mum's bout of kidney stones, howling agony in the dead of night, a stay in hospital, minor surgery, could derail dad. For, for a day or two, he had no choice but to focus on her, collect her from hospital, tend to her, make sure she kept her fluids up. But before long, his bowels came roaring back. Come here and look at this, he'd say. Soon I will be gone and out of your way. Then you'll see. And that's the end of his bowels. That's <laughs> the end of the bowels. Well, <laughs> I, I, I howled through that part of the book. Um, I don't know about any other readers. Um, I, you know, I, I found it not only funny and in some odd way light relief from, you know, what is often a very dark read but also kind of warm. <laughs> Maybe it's just me, but do you, do you think there's something kind of, you know, openly intimate about sharing one's bowel problems? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, of course. Yeah, your bowel motions are an intimate thing. Uh, but dad, the funny thing was that the dad came to think that that was something appropriate to share with his kids and his family. And then yeah. he thought that um, that when it became a sign of his intimacy um, and his... Uh, confidence with us that he thought that was perfectly normal um, to share that sort of stuff with us and it became not only a sort of symptom of his narcissism and hypochondria but also I think a reflection of how he how he regarded us. And, And so interesting that he's quite happy to talk openly about his bowel motions but you know not not so happy to talk openly about his depression or about you know his some other things that that probably he could have, you know, would have been good to talk about. Well, yes, he felt, I mean, like men of his generation, I guess, he he had trouble, certainly had trouble talking about his depression with other people, um, with other, especially with other men. I mean, he wouldn't have dreamed of discussing his mental state or his depressive condition with his mates. Um, But uh, with us, it became... A constant theme, and it kind of, in a way, he bludgeoned us with his uh, with his depression. Um, and 
So, yeah, he well, he would never have discussed it. And I think this is still a part with men these days. Um, people always say, oh, but it's much more open and it's destigmatized. But I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure. I and mean, then certainly I have a great difficulty still discussing this sort of stuff with my male friends. Yes, this, this um, almost this Achilles heel, the skewed notion of manhood, which, of course, opens the book for you. Yeah, I mean, that, the whole concept of manhood, I mean, the book, the book really is about family. Uh, it's, it's about, that's the main theme, I reckon. It's about close families, families under stress, uh, families with secrets. Um, and it's also about women, strong women. But, I mean, the whole theme of manhood and men relating to one another um, and sharing of themselves um, is a big central part of that, especially men passing down, like fathers passing down the idea of what it is to be a man to their sons. Um, and this is something that really hasn't been written about, I don't think, in, in either memoirs or fiction. Mm, absolutely. And um, so I know the book arose from an article of the same name in the Sydney Morning Herald's Good Weekend magazine, a very popular article. Um, but what, what inspired you to write that article in the first place? Well, it is, that's a really good question, and it's very hard to answer. It had been on my mind for years and years and years. It was kind of like a theme or something. It was kind of like a defining event in my life. And, you know, it was, I was 18 when it happened. His, he killed himself and when I found him at the kitchen table. Um, so it kind of become, became a very... Uh, a pivotal moment kind of before dad and then after dad um, and in many ways I became almost frightened of writing about it um, because it became to me something so precious and fragile almost kind of like a sort of vase or a family heirloom that I, I was frightened of writing about it but then after a while it just it just worked its way to the surface a bit like a big splinter and it finally just emerged. And I'm not even sure why. I mean, I, I wanted to write about it in feature form for the magazine because um, it would be an easy way to, to get it out there. But then it just exploded um, and people, it really connected with people. Mm. Were you surprised about that connection? Uh, I was surprised at the volume and, and the, um, the intensity of connection, yeah. I mean, I was... People, I was, it's always personal stories and truth telling that that people engage with most. That's my experience. So you can write, you can spend months researching and writing it, or you know maybe an investigative piece or a profile on someone. But that if you bear yourself uh, a deep um, uh, and sensitive part of yourself, readers really respond. I think because they. It, it connects with their own humanness. So while I did think that it would connect, I was I was blown away by the volume and the intensity with which people really related to the story. Yeah, and, and at what point then did you say, you know, there's more to say here, I, you know, this needs to be a book, not an article? Well, I, I got such was the volume of response. I got contacted by... Um, several publishing houses and agents mm. saying, I think this would make a great book. And really that's, I think from experience, that's usually how it happens. Um, 
if no one had really responded to the story, I would have thought, okay, like it, I, it was a, it was an important ex, um, experience for me to, to write the story, but I wouldn't have necessarily thought, well, let's go on with the book. But all these other people saying, wow, you know, you must write this book. There's definitely a book in this. So that's really how it happens. You need to get the confidence from other people who say, um, to tell you and maybe convince you there is more material there. Yes, and I suppose you did sort of promise your mum. Yeah, I mean, what happened was that I had wanted to write or I had certainly thought about writing the story uh, of our family before, um, before, like years before, around sort of late 2000, mid-2000, 2005. I just sort of thought... God, I'd like to write about this. And certainly my mum was, you know, saying, it'd be the making of you, you know, you should write this book. Uh, you know, it's such an important story and it connects with you. Um, but then when I said, okay, I wouldn't mind writing about this, and I started talking to mum, she said, oh, look, she kind of had second thoughts. And she said, oh, you can, I want you to write about it, but only after I have died. Um, when, I, when I've gone because I think she realised that it would be really, uh, she realised correctly that it would be a very impactful kind of uh, almost traumatic experience for her too because a lot of people of her generation would be in touch um, querying, saying, you know, just raising stuff with her it would be quite traumatic for her as well. Yes, and I guess that goes to the heart of, of um, the memoir issue, if you like. You know, you've, you've written It's Impossible to Write the Truth Without Hurting Someone. Um, and and the story does get very personal at times, not only about, you, you know, your father and his emotions, but also your own depression and, and, you know, the intrusive thoughts, your siblings, your relationship with your wife. You know, there, there's a whole range of stories that are your story but that bisect with other people's stories. Yeah, they do... I mean, of course, the life is made up of all these connections with people you love and sometimes people you don't love. Uh, and um, so writing about all of that and writing about a family, particularly a big family, uh, is always going to involve uh, sensitivities, uh, overlapping concerns, um, ideas that people have of themselves, um, which may not be true mm. uh, like your auntie so yeah like my auntie who is the most unbelievable narcissist as well um so her and dad had got this somewhere along the way that developed this sense of um they were the most important people in the world and, and they were going to impose their will on on the world around them so writing about that there's no point writing a book like this without writing the truth what's the point you know so so, and the truth, I'm saying, the truth hurts. Yeah. So you just had to, I guess, push those those worries aside and, and keep pushing on with it. Yeah. I mean, you, it surprised me actually um, how easy it was in many instances to tell the truth. I was a lot more, when you write a book like this, you learn heaps of stuff. And I'm not just talking about, you know, uncovering family secrets or, stuff like that, you learn a lot about yourself and what you're capable of and what you're willing, where you're willing to go um, with your writing. And I learned that I was a lot more ruthless 
than I had thought I was. Um, so when it came to writing about certain themes, um, certain people, I really went there with a, with a lot more ease than I had anticipated. So it was a very interesting exercise. Yes, it almost seems to me that the book itself is kind of the answer to the question you never got answered, this idea of, you know, um, toxic masculinity. The, the, the book's like the opposite of that, um, kind of letting it out, crying freely and letting go of notions like failure or, you know, other things that cripple. Yeah, I mean, there, the notion of failure is such a big thing, especially, I think, with, well, it, I was going to say, especially with men who are kind of a certain generation who are expected to um, provide um, the, uh, uh, deal with their emotions, just deal with it. And the whole, the whole idea of failure is kind of um, unacceptable. I mean, of course, it's unacceptable with everybody. Who wants to fail and who wants to be seen to fail? And um, so writing about that with my father, who had ostensibly achieved so much, I mean, he was a, an international um, footballer, he was a very well-respected um, doctor um, and very popular, had a huge personality, but he thought he'd failed. So it was really an interesting exercise to peel that back and try and discover what it all meant. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that the book seems to me to do um, that's very powerful is the idea of, of talking openly about mental illness, raising awareness and creating this kind of advocacy, demanding research, funding and support. I'm thinking in particular of how your dad's insurer wouldn't pay out because he committed suicide. You know, the notion of the illness component of mental illness. Yeah, that was really interesting and something that I think would have changed a lot uh, these days, that's something that has changed. I mean, I'm not sure. I haven't. You have to look at each. You have to look at policies over a period of time. But I'm certainly sure that. I mean, back then when he committed suicide, it was considered um, basically the insurers thought, well, he's done it to himself, which was true, um, and therefore uh, they weren't prepared to pay out uh, because it wasn't really openly acknowledged as an illness in the sense of, say, um, in a way that cancer would be considered today. Mm. And so, um, I do, yeah, I think that these days, yeah, things have changed in that regard. I mean, insurers, as long as you disclose the fact that you've had depressive episodes, yeah, I think that, I think they would pull out uh, one, you know, would pay out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, we used to be silent about cancer at one point as well. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny how things, they do, they, things do change over time. I mean, some, when I wrote something recently, um, it was about uh, the notion, so it was about Australia, actually. I mean, uh, how uh, Australia has this, uh, yes, false notion itself. And... Some guy got on to me and said, what's the point whinging about this? Things don't change. Things never change. You know, you're naive. You can't, if you think that um, you can change something like the perception of the country, um, big issues like that, you, then you're dreaming. And I thought, well, that's such rubbish. Um, look at, I mean, tell that to, you know, a 10-year-old who might, you know, in, the, in, the, in Victorian times who would have been working away in a, in a cotton mill in London. I mean, it's just... 
rubbish. Things change all the time. Perceptions change. Uh, the world moves on. And I, and I think generally the trajectory of progress is up. You know, it's positive in general. That, that remains to be seen perhaps, but yes. In many things. In many ways. In other ways, yeah. I mean, look, it's, uh, yeah, of course it's always... It's not, it's not always clear, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it does seem to me that this is a common theme in the book, this idea of, of secrets and hiding the ugly and projecting, oh, you know, oh, the secret, success. Yeah. The success Secrets lie, are a like. huge thing. And, and, and secrets are so, uh, again, secrets are so intimate. You have to trust someone to, to keep a secret. And to trust someone, of course, is to believe that they're... Um, that you can travel along the same path and they won't betray you. Um, so keeping a secret is, by definition, really intimate. Um, and to write about that, writing about that, they're really interesting. I found that, and I think most people find the idea of a secret, keeping secrets, really um, intriguing. Uh, and it's certainly the material to write about. Yes, for sure. Um, mental health in particular, though, it seems to me, um, and I've noticed that, you know, it's say he died of a heart attack, anything but suicide. I mean, I think there's still a lot to learn about how the brain functions. And so it, it is something that's quite scary. Yeah. I mean, look, the brain is a, I think it's the last frontier, isn't it, of, um, of medical knowledge and, and uh, research. It's such a, I mean, look at Alzheimer's, look at, mm. uh, yeah, look at um, schizophrenia. No one really knows how this stuff works. And when you, it's funny, I recently I did a story on uh, For Good Weekend, a big feature on ECT, so electric convulsive therapy, shock, shock treatment, in other words. And I asked the woman who was administering this treatment and it was developing kind of new areas and platforms to basically administer electric shocks to someone's brain. And I said, how does it work? And she said, I, no one really knows. <laughs> and she was, she was one of the world-leading experts on on shock treatment and she said we don't exactly know we can't say how it works but it certainly works and the fact that it works is kind of enough if it's terrifying because i don't think we necessarily know how much is lost when i mean i know there's memory loss but do we know how permanent the damage is i'm not sure that that's been made clear either no yeah it hasn't yeah it hasn't been a lot of people do go through a lot of trauma and damage to long-term memory um yeah, I mean you're right, and but I mean there are always negatives to uh, side effects to every treatment. Look at chemo; um, that's an unbearable uh, process for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and it, but it's in many ways it's seen as something tolerable, and um, and a, and a suffering worth worth taking. Yes. Um, because the positives can outweigh the negatives. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, the brain's plasticity, which is all kind of new research coming out now about how, you know, it can heal itself, he can change and so forth. Very complex and interesting. Yeah. And all very, very oh, new. Yeah. And very new, yeah. yeah. Um, the ability for the brain to uh, regenerate, yeah, and develop new connections um, and, and grow, like generate, generate, what was it, neurogenesis she was talking about the fact that people always thought that once you lost neurons, they were lost and gone forever. But in fact, that's not true anymore. They know that's not true. Mm. 
Yes. So one thing that really struck me with the book, which, you know, is incredibly earthy at times, um, is how literary it was. Um, You know, it is a down-to-earth book. It's very simple and quick to read. But some of your descriptions are really, really rich. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, thank you. I mean, there's no point writing a book that's an ugly book. And I really love, I mean, I'm a lifelong reader. And I mean, I love... You know, I relish words and how they go together, and the euphony, the sounds they can make, um, and how that, how the sounds and the rhythms they make can really affect you. So it's not just the meaning of the words; it's actually the way they're put together, and that's and the way they expose a theme, tease out a theme. But it's got to be. I really wanted it to be a work of literature and and be uh, well written and hopefully beautifully written, and. And it's really edifying and satisfying that people come up and go, "Hey, this is this is actually literature." You know, it's great. It's not, it, you know, it's beautifully written, and I'm so thrilled with that. You know, it really made made me so happy about it. Yes, yeah, so well, you you wrote poetry when you were younger. Do you, do you feel that was kind of underlying some of the passages? I might even ask you to write, to yeah, read, read one for me. Yeah, yeah, it's um. Yeah, it's a it's a big thing. Um, poetry, I think, trains you in rhythm, um, and rhythm such an cadence. Rhythm, how a sentence unfolds, and where the beats are, is so important. It's so um, it's key to to um, the reading experience and the pleasure you get out of it. Well, since you have the book handy, <laughs> on page 224, um, I wonder if you could just read me just the paragraph that begins with, it was summer in Sydney, right through to the waves will set you free. It's just a little passage, but I think it's, yeah, really, sure, it's a really sure. good example of what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, sure. Um, it was summer in Sydney, flat surf and nagging nor'westers, glinting sun on a tinfoil sea piss-warm water and long, hot, cloudless days, relentlessly cloudless days, blue skies, day in, day out, suffocating and featureless. A blue sky says nothing. It has no soul. There's nothing so bleak in this world as a perfectly cloudless sky. Winter is better. In winter, storms boil up in the Southern Ocean, making it smoke, chiseling it with dagger-like winds, flogging up welts of swell capped with whiteness. Plumes of ice and air that are shed in sheets as the waves push on, pulsing north, low breathing and full of intent. These waves will try to drown you. These waves will crack you open. These waves will set you free. Mm. I, I feel in some ways, in, in some strange way, that that also encapsulates a little bit about the theme, this notion of, of you know, of, I guess, feeling your feelings and, and opening yourself up to these things, to the beauty yeah, and the pain. I think, yeah, opening, opening yourself up to beauty and um, sensuousness um, and the pleasures of being in the real world right now and seeing, um, and seeing the things around you and getting meaning from it. So the ocean was, especially the ocean, the ocean was really important when I was growing up. And in fact, it's still really important. I could never dream of living in the middle of Australia or away from the ocean. I just simply could not do it. And I've done it for periods overseas where I've lived in other countries away from the ocean. And it, it does something to you. It does something to me. And I just realised then how much um, it connected with me and what it means to me. It's just so beautiful. 
Mm. Were, were you inspired by other books or other memoirs? Was was there a particular um, style or a particular book that, that really resonated with you that made you think, yeah, that's kind of what I'd like to do? Yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, I'm always interested in how people say no. You know, when I was writing, I sort of threw out all the books that may have contaminated my style or my thinking. I just couldn't think of any more untrue for me. I, I loved... Um, I love, always love all the writing of um, Margaret Atwood mm. and particularly Cat's Eye. Um, Cat's Eye is about bullying, uh, girls bullying one another, and it has an incredible ability to place, place you in the head of a young girl. Um, there's other books. All, I mean, for, the, for explosiveness and pyrotechnics, there's always the books of T.C. Boyle. He's an American writer as well. Fantastic command of English and, you know, mind-blowing vocabulary and very evocative, fantastically evocative, especially when it comes to personalities. Um, who else? Uh, there was a fantastic book, of course, in a completely different vein, um, Raymond Geiter, who wrote Romulus, My Father, um, who certainly... I mean, that's just, in, it couldn't be more opposed to, to Margaret Atwood or T.C. Boyle's very simple, sparse storytelling. So, if you can, I mean, for me, you know, all of that has a place in the story I wanted to tell, yeah. Mm. And maybe you'll also end up on an HSC syllabus, <laughs> like Raymond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hope. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty good. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate vote of... Uh, uh, of uh, confidence in a book, yeah. Maybe, although you, you'll also end up with a lot of teenagers hating you, but that's that's another story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, maybe that's true. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Um, so did you feel in some ways that by writing this book, you were, you were sort of finding your father, not just the father you knew, but aspects of your father that you didn't know, kind of bringing him back to life in a way and giving his life the meaning that perhaps he didn't feel it had? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was um, interesting in the beginning. I thought, "Oh my God, how am I going to? How am I going to get all the material? I can't. I can't remember this. I can't remember um, three hundred pages of my life. I mean, it's ridiculous. Or Dad's life, or my family's life." And then someone said to me, "Just sit down and stay still. <laughs> Just sit down in the same spot, and after about ten minutes." You would be amazed what comes out of your head, the memories that come out of your head. And I would advise, advise anybody who's attempting to write a memoir uh, to do that. Just sit still in the same spot and before long you'll find stuff comes out of your head um, that you didn't know was there. Um, so in a funny way, yes, I did peel back layers about Dad and myself and the family um, that I didn't really, hadn't really consciously known were there. It was really interesting. He sort of came out, uh, whereas before he, I knew he was in relief before two-dimensional to, to me, uh, in a sense, because of, it was so long ago in one sense. But yeah, as I sat there, all these things that the text, the texture of his life and his personality, all started to build up. It was a fascinating experience. Mm. And and I guess it, with something like suicide, it becomes a kind of a focal point, and it. it, it it must be quite good, quite helpful, I think, to, you know, to explore more than just that point. Yeah, I mean, to explore, you mean to explore more than just 
suicide as an event, as an idea? Yeah. What do you mean? Or suicide is, you know, what defines that person. It's such a big event. Um, But there's so much more to the father you create in the book than just that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I get it. Yeah, you're you're so right. I mean, because that's the way he ended his life, it's kind of, yeah, that's the punctuation mark on the end of his life. Mm. And um, people may remember him for other stuff, especially me, but I guess for outsiders, they when they talk about someone um, who's killed themselves, they will always mention that. And then once they've mentioned the fact that they committed suicide, it colours everything else. Yes. So, yeah, it's a defining thing and then trying to tease a personality and fill out a personality that that supersedes that that goes beyond that is is the challenge. I think, yeah, yeah. And there's there's so much beauty in you know in the pain and in the anger. Yeah, there's there's complexity. Mm. Um, so and complexity is attractive because it's. Um, it's just, I mean, it takes it's a challenge to understand. I and mean, then things that are easy to understand uh, can be boring. <laughs> yes. um, but if there's a concept, idea, and concept, and and co- complex people, yeah, they're they're attractive. Yeah. So we're nearly out of time. But what's what's in the cards for you, Tim? Have you got some other longer writing project on the go now, or a wish list? Uh, I have a wish list, <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure where how practical they are. I mean. You just never know. You never know how practical they are. And also, you never know. It's weird. You never know what... Uh, I don't think you can predict what might be worth writing about. Uh, because in this, like with, in, with this, this story about my family and my dad, I had no idea that it would be the, um, the success it was and, and how it would connect with people. I had no idea. So when I wrote it, I certainly wasn't thinking about doing a book. Um, but then it, the book popped out. So I reckon when you go, oh, you know, I have this, I would like to write about, say, gypsies in Australia, which is, I'd love to do that. That's you know, one thing I'd love to do. Um, then, but it might not work. And it might not, you know, I mean, there's all these things that you would love to write about, but they just, they might not engage. And so thinking of a wish list is in a way kind of, not that productive. It's better just to come up on ideas, I think, if you can. Yes, to sit down in that quiet. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, not necessarily wait for a moment of brilliant inspiration or, or, or an epiphany because I don't really, really believe in a creative process. But it's certainly um, patience and waiting for things to come along and not getting hugely frustrated uh, if they don't is, um, I think that's the way to go, which isn't, which is pretty hard because I, I mean, I can't do that, but it's a constant, you know, I've got to try to do that and just wait and not get impatient, not want, not want success and not want, you know, to write good books all the time. You just got to try and be more patient. Yes. Not easy in today's fast paced world. <laughs> No, it's really hard. Patience is really hard. Something I've always struggled with. I feel being patient is just so painful. I want to get on with things and I want things to happen. Yeah. So it's really hard being patient. Yeah. I suppose at the moment too, it's um, there's a, a lot of uh, promotional work for Farewell to the Father still going on. 
including the upcoming St. Yeah. Albans Writers' Festival. So you'll be there on Sunday yeah. the 18th, won't you? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, um, there's heaps uh, happening. There's, I'm doing a lot of uh, book talks at um, bookshops, which is really interesting, which is one thing I hadn't really considered. Um, so what happens is that um, you go along to a bookshop and they – uh, and people come along. It's usually a fairly intimate kind of experience, which is really good. When I was at the Sydney Writers Festival, there were like hundreds of people sort of mm-hmm. sitting out in front of you, and you feel like it's a bit of a, it's just a more, it's fairly sort of overwhelming experience. But with um, bookshops, it's really lovely. You sort of sit there with 10, 20 people, and they can sort of say, sort of quiz you about what they liked or what they didn't like about the book. So I love that. I'm doing a lot of them. In fact, Funny you should mention that because uh, in a week's time uh, on the 1st of September, Thursday, I'm doing an event at Better Red Than Dead um, at, uh, in Newtown, the bookstore in Newtown, beautiful, cute little bookstore there. Mm. Um, so it's about, I think, about 6 o'clock at night on the 1st of September. So come along. Everybody come along. Yes. Um, there's lots of, other, lots of other events too. So it's, it's yeah. really good and busy. Wonderful. Um, That's all we have time for today. But, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. No, thanks for having me. Uh, Bye for now.